had our Wave 101 class last, uh, last Sunday after church. This is kind of a step for those people who are saying, I'm interested in making Lighthouse Church more than just a place that I go. I really want to be a member here. I really want to invest myself here. And we had about 10 people that went through that. So if you were at that class last week, would you please stand up? Because we want to recognize those of you who um, were there. Because for many of you, you're pretty new here. So, so we are beginning a new series today. Um, that we call God Quest. And the whole purpose of this series is to explore the foundations for our faith. Because we make a lot of claims about who Christ is and what we believe. And what we want to do over the course of the next month and a half or so is really explore um, the, the truthfulness, the, the theological underpinnings of what we claim to believe. And there's this really interesting interaction. And you can turn here if you want in John chapter 18. So if you'd like to turn there, I'm just going to read a couple of lines here. There's this really interesting interaction between Jesus, who has just been arrested, has just been tried for subversion, for claiming, although he never claimed it, to be the king of the Jews. And so he's been arrested and he's about to be crucified. But before he does, they've shipped him over to this guy Pontius Pilate, who is kind of a secular leader of the area. And Pontius is just kind of checking him out and asking him questions, finding out who this Jesus fellow is that he's been hearing so much about. And Jesus says this to Pontius Pilate after Pontius asks him, hey, listen, are you really a king? Yeah, these claims have been made about you, but are you a king? And Jesus says this in verse 37 of chapter 18 of John. Jesus answered, you're right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Basically, Jesus is saying, I have come to open people's eyes to the fact that there's something far greater than just the momentary that we see, just the empirical evidence that we can gather with our senses. I am here to make sure that people recognize that there is far more to life than this moment. I am representing that truth. And Pontius Pilate's response is very telling. And I think that it's one that really matches the heartbeat of this century's mindset. Because listen to what Pontius Pilate says. What is truth? And just blows it off. Like, Really? You claim to be able to to tell us what truth is? What's truth? I mean, doesn't that right there encapsulate the heartbeat of this generation? And I don't just mean an age group, but I mean so many people in our society have this perspective on truth that says it's relative to each person. It's subjective based upon where you're standing and you're looking at it. Whatever is truth to you is truth to you and nobody can question that. So long as you're not impinging upon somebody else's perspective of what truth is. And from this social perspective on truth, it really becomes a relative thing based upon your circumstances, based upon your experiences, based upon your relationships and other things that happen in your life. What you decide is truthful, that becomes true for you. And the only problem our society has is when somebody steps up and says, wait a minute. Two plus two cannot equal five. Wait a minute. We cannot say that gravity doesn't exist simply because it, it doesn't work for us. And in the same way, if, I, if we say that this is truth, 
then by definition, it must mean that other things are not true. But the moment that somebody stands up and says, if there's absolute truth, that means that other things that are in contradiction to that cannot be true. All of a sudden, you're uh, you're labeled delusional. You're labeled bigoted. You are labeled, uh, you know, closed-minded and intolerant. And intolerance is the one thing that society cannot stomach. But here's why this matters. Because what we believe affects our actions, doesn't it? What we believe about the world, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about our circumstances affects the way that we live our lives. Take my boy, for instance. My boy is four years old now, and he was told at a pretty early age, I don't know where he heard it, but basically that there are tickle monsters in the dark. I don't know what a tickle monster is. But he learned that they're in the dark, and so he has an innate fear of the dark. Now, it's not terror of it, but he's a little afraid of the dark, so he sleeps with the light on, because for him, darkness is not safe. Now, this is the same kid who will jump off of anything. And I'm not talking like feet first jumping. This boy dives, arms outstretched. And The other day, Robin and I were upstairs. There was a a nine-foot ladder set up, and he climbs up to the top of it. Kathy doesn't know about this. I'm about to get myself in trouble. Climbs up to the top of it. Robin walks underneath it, and Ethan goes, catch, and jumps. My boy is 47 pounds. Jumps from the top rope. I I once came home, um, and I was about halfway up the stairs, and I look up, and here's Ethan from the top step. Dad! Arms outstretched, glee in his face, because he knows his dad is going to catch him. And up to this point, with one or two notable exceptions, we have caught him. And so he's not, for him, and by the way, we have taught him that that's not an okay to greet daddy when he comes home and it's not okay to jump off stairs and everything. We're good there. (laughs) Okay? Um, Yeah, we, we made that point very clear. But long story short is this. My boy believes that he is safe when he jumps. And for him, gravity holds no fear. And so his beliefs shape his actions. And we're the same way, aren't we? I mean, think about for a moment the way in which we approach life. We go through life with a set of beliefs. We'll call it a worldview. It's a set of beliefs about our world, about about other people, about ourselves in the midst of it. And these beliefs influence the way that we see things and the way that we act. We have contained within this worldview are things like our identity. Who am I? How do people see me? What are other people like? Are they mainly trustworthy or are people really there going to hurt me so I need to be on guard all the time? Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? Do, can I, you know, do I identify with a particular per- political persuasion or am I more standoffish because I don't trust anybody? You know, all of these kind of things begin to be made into our worldview. Am I safe or am I predominantly in danger so I always constantly have to have my guard up? Those are things that are contained in our worldview. And the reality is most of us are not aware that we even view the world through a set of beliefs. We're kind of like fish that are swimming in the ocean that have no concept of the fact that we're wet because we've never known anything different. All we've ever known is looking through the world through a lens of borrowed beliefs. We got our worldview initially from our parents and the way that we were raised. 
Because of the way that they raised us, the way that they taught us, the way that they disciplined us, the things that they said that we needed to be cautious about, the things that they said, oh, just go play, it's not a big deal. The ways that, it probably predominantly, the way that they modeled their own lives has all played into our worldview. But then we take that little adolescent worldview and we go to school and now all of a sudden our little worldview comes into conflict with other slightly different worldviews those of our teachers those of our students and other students our peers and it begins to be shaped and molded and then we start having relationships outside of just our immediate family and again our worldview gets shaped and molded and over the course of our lives from our interactions with people from our experiences from the circumstances that we find ourselves in from the kind of shows that we watch, all of these things begin to influence our worldview. And so every single person that's sitting here today has a fully formed worldview. Now it's not completely finished because it's going to continue to morph and shape over the course of your life. But your worldview influences the way that you view others, influences the way that you view yourself, influences the way you interact and view God and all of that other stuff. And that worldview is predominantly made up of borrowed beliefs. What I mean by that is in a lot of ways, we've picked up these beliefs from our parents, from our peers, from the people that have come into our lives, mentors, pastors, trusted people, from the media and the, and the sources that we choose to get our information from. All of these things have shaped how we view the world. And in a lot of ways, I guess it's kind of like hermit crabs. We're like crabs who have gone and found a shell that was created by some other animal and we've crawled into it and goes, yeah, this fits. This is good. This will work for now. Until we maybe find something that fits a little bit better. But here's the problem. I think for, for most of us, we've never really examined fully the foundations of those beliefs, have we? We've just kind of accepted them. We've just kind of taken them on and said, yeah, this fits, this feels comfortable, this feels okay, so I'm good for now. And, and we might not examine them for a lot of different reasons. Maybe one, we really believe that all truth is relative, so therefore I have this perspective, somebody else has different one, there's lots of other options, but this one suffices. It's worked so far, so I'm good. Maybe for some of us, we just feel like it's scary to examine the foundations of our beliefs because we're afraid of what we might find if we honestly ask those questions, if we honestly took almost the, the operating system that we've been looking at the world through and go, is this okay? Is this true? Does this line up with what I'm seeing and all those kind of things? Or, and I, I would suspect for a lot of us, the reason that we don't look at it is, man, that feels like a whole lot of work. It's just easier to take our parents and our pastor's word for it or those trusted advisors. It's just kind of like, yeah. I don't want to rebuild the wheel. For those of you who have come to know Jesus Christ later in life, you, you came out of one worldview. Maybe you were not, never raised in the church. And then later on in life, you came face to face with God and you were given a choice. For those of you who have taken that route, I really respect the choices you've had to make. Because in a lot of ways, you have surrendered one worldview for a different worldview. Or at least you've changed out that part of your worldview that says that God does or does not exist. And you have had to weigh the cost before saying yes. 
But for those of you who are like me, who have been raised in a Christian home, have been raised in the church, a lot of times we are taught of the, the, the trustworthiness of our beliefs from the same people who are teaching us our beliefs, our parents, our pastors, and we just begin to accept that it's truth without ever really examining the foundations of that. So our beliefs are really a whole lot of assumptions that we've accepted from other people, incorporated into our lives and said, yeah, this works. And, and out of these, we build a house of cards that is our religious perspective. And it suffices until the day that we come face to face with a question or a conflict or an experience that doesn't fit into our neat, tidy understanding of who God is, our neat, tidy understanding of what the world is. And in that moment, we have a crisis of belief because our worldview and our reality are in conflict with one another. And in that moment, we have a choice. Do we A, say this no longer suffices, I'm going to just throw it out and go find something else that works because this is flawed. Do we B, say I'm going to ignore this question. I'm going to ignore what's going on here. I'm just going to turn a blind eye to it because it's too scary. This, this is too valuable to me. I can't even allow it to be in question. Or do we see? Do the hard work of taking our worldview and the underlying beliefs and assumptions that we've gathered over the course of our lives and bring it out in front of us and examine it in light of, of this new information that we're getting and really process through it? That's a lot of work. And you might say, you know, what's the big deal with doing this? But it's scary. It's really scary to bring that stuff forward. Now, some of you, I came face to face with one of these crises of beliefs 11 years ago. At the time, I was just beginning uh, my master's program in theology, mainly because I had a whole lot of questions and I didn't want to take my parents or my pastor's word for it. So I was beginning this study in theology, and it was September 2001. And within one month, I had three massive blows that were leveled to my worldview. The first one was the, the planes flying in the twin, into the Twin Towers on 9-11. And as I watched on television those towers crumbling, my confidence and my security in my safety, you know, I'm an American, I'm safe, nothing like that that I, I hear on the news about what happens in other countries could ever happen here, that crumbled. Within that same week, I was at church, a different one. And our founding pastor got up and said, I have had an extramarital affair and I'm stepping down from my role in order to work on my marriage. And in that moment, the security of my church community was shaken to its foundation. Within that same month, I was sitting in a class, one of the first classes I took in my theology program. And the professor was talking about kind of the development of, of the Christian um, creeds that were developed a couple hundred years after Christ. And part of that was he was talking about the development of the word the Trinity. Now, the concept of the Trinity of God, a triune God, three in one, is found all throughout Scripture. But the word itself 
is never found in scripture. And for somebody who's been raised in the church, raised with that term, it was like, excuse me? Because in that moment, and it may seem small, but in that moment for me, it, it forced me to realize that I had kind of accepted this belief, and I'd never articulated this to myself. Intellectually, I knew this not to be the case, but I had always kind of thought that the Bible just fell from heaven, just appeared. Intellectually, I knew that wasn't true, but I had never taken into consideration the human component in that equation. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the Bible. But I never considered that. And in that moment, I realized how much of my religious beliefs were simply things I'd accepted because my parents had taught me them or that my pastor had told me them. And I'd never examined them. So in many ways, my religious perspective was a house of assumptions, a house of cards that I'd built. And then on top of that shaky structure, I had balanced my faith in God. And in that moment, it was as if my, my professor, in bringing this up, had taken a sledgehammer to the house of cards and it began to topple. And I would never have been able to articulate what was going on in the moment. But looking back on it, I was wrestling with a question. Do I ignore this new bit of information? Do I ignore the dissonance that I'm feeling inside? So that I can kind of just shore up my religious perspective so I don't have to mess with it at all? Do I just kind of knock the whole thing down and, and, and walk away and go find something else? Because obviously I was never taught these things, so it's not safe to put my trust in this anymore. Or do I do that hard process of beginning to really, I mean, when something, it, it, when the foundation of something goes, you almost have to just start from the beginning. And I began to go, do I allow myself to actually for the first time examine the foundations of my faith? Ask the questions that I've been shoving to the back of my mind because it felt like unfaithfulness to ask them. Do I begin to wrestle with what I really believe? Now, you know, it might seem like the easy, obvious answer, but in that moment, it was terrifying because what if I found that it, was, it could not stand up to the scrutiny of my examination? What then? I'd be like a boat out in the ocean without any rudder, Clueless of how to get back to shore. Clueless of whether where shore even was. <laughs> I suspect some of you probably are thinking, well, the correct answer is you just need to have more faith in moments like that. Because the reality is, you'll never understand God. He's God. He's an infinite God. You are a finite human being. How could you ever wrap your mind around all the questions? And you would be absolutely correct in saying that. But on the flip side, remember when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? And he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and what? With all your mind. How could I honestly love God with all of my mind if in order to do so, I had to be intellectually dishonest with myself. How could I love God with all of my mind if I did not allow myself to at least articulate the questions that were there? 
How could I love God with all of my mind if I had to blind myself to things that were kind of like shards of glass in the back of my mind that I was just trying to ignore? And just to point out, there's precedent in Scripture. Go with me to Psalm chapter 10. The Psalms are written by a guy named David. Well, he's one of the authors, of the vast majority of them. The Psalms are simply cries to God. They're prayers of praise. They're prayers of, of help and all of these kind of things. And the Psalms are full of both praise, but they're also full of honest, visceral, like, cries for help. And I just, I just want to point out a couple of things. Psalm 10, just the first verse. Listen to what David says. A David, who is called a man after God's own heart, listen to the way he talks to God. <laughs> Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? Any, anybody ever feel that way? God, where are you right now? Turn to, to chapter 13, Psalm 13. Again, we're just taking a look at a couple of things and we'll, we'll keep going. How Long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? There is precedent in Scripture that we can come honestly before our God with our questions. I mean, because let's remember, God is God. He's big enough to handle our full range of emotions. And he's big enough that he won't be swept away by our overwhelming crisis of belief. We may feel overwhelmed, but he's not. And it would be intellectually dishonest for us to simply pretend that they don't exist. And to come to him as if everything's okay when in reality it's not. Now, I do want to point out that there's a pretty sharp distinction in, in how we can, because we can approach our questions in one of two ways. We can bring our questions or, or we can kind of come with this chip on our shoulder that we might label doubt and doubt God. And doubt and, and unbelief are kind of hand in hand. Go with me to John chapter 20 because I want to examine the difference in posture. What we're going to look at in the next couple of minutes is our posture in bringing our questions. So in John... Chapter 20, we're introduced to a guy named Thomas. Thomas is one of the disciples. Many of us know him as a guy called Doubting Thomas, which is kind of unfortunate because Thomas, you know, that's kind of what he's known for. But the first time that we're introduced to Thomas in Scripture, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the authorities and I'm going to ultimately be killed. And Thomas goes, what? Well, then, guys, let's go with him so we can die with him. This is the same guy. He was willing to lay down his life. So he's not just a guy who has some doubt, but look at now what we're going to look at here. Jesus did go to Jerusalem and Jesus was killed. This was the guy that Thomas and the rest of the disciples fervently believed was the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer of his people. They had placed their faith in him. And as they watched their Lord be killed as a common criminal, I don't doubt that their hearts broke and the disappointment must have been overwhelming because nobody comes back from the grave. And so they're broken and they're scattered. 
And then Jesus appears to many of the disciples in an upper room and says, hey, listen, I have overcome the grave. And that, which is something that we'll we'll talk about, did Jesus actually rise from the dead, is something that we'll talk about in the coming weeks. But in the process of doing that, Thomas isn't there. And so the rest of the disciples, I just want to see, I want you to see the way that Thomas approaches this question of whether or not Jesus has actually risen from the dead. So John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, was one of the twelve, uh, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, he's risen. And remember, Thomas has already been hurt deeply in watching his Lord be crucified. He's already been disappointed because he thought that he was going to be the one who would redeem God's people. So he responds to them. And I want you to consider, try to picture Thomas saying this. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side where the spear had gone, I will not believe it. When I, when I picture Thomas saying this, I picture him saying it with his arms crossed, kind of leaning back a little bit, going, yeah, right. I know that you, you want to tell me that he's risen from the dead, but until he walks into this room and he shows me, until I can see the tangible evidence, I won't allow myself to go there because it's far too painful. I am not going to allow my hopes to get up again, only to have them crushed again. You take this kind of a posture, one of arms crossed, leaning back and saying, prove it to me before I will ever take a step towards you. You take that one step further and all of a sudden you find yourself in the camp of the Pharisees, unbelieving, arms crossed, saying, prove it to me and I will show you why it's false. It kind of feels a little bit like these presidential debates right now, right? You make an amazing explanation and the other guy's like, oh, that's ridiculous. And he was like, come on, is there any conversation going on here, right? So doubt and unbelief are, are, are very similar in posture. Leaning back, passively demanding that you meet my criteria before I will even consider what you have to say. Now couple that, or, or contrast that, I should say. Go back to Psalm 13, the psalm that we've already looked at of David. Because here, David is bringing, David is equally hurting. David is overwhelmed. David has questions that we might consider, some might say, where's your faith in all of this? That you're asking God these questions. Hasn't he already been faithful to you? Well, listen to the words of David, and I want you to consider perhaps what his posture is as he's saying these things. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But... I trust in your unfailing love and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Whereas Thomas's posture in saying, until I see these things, 
I'm not going to believe. In contrast to that is David, who it feels like is leaning forward, just yearning for connection, going, God, I want to understand this. I need you. I'm overwhelmed. I'm lost. Please join me in this. And even in the midst of my questions, I will choose to worship you. I will choose to celebrate you and to celebrate the faithfulness that you've shown over and over and over. It's really a matter of posture. Are we sitting back and demanding, God, prove it to me before I will ever take a step towards you? Or are we willing to lean in and just honestly bring God our stuff? And I wrote this down because I didn't want to, I didn't want to mangle it and saying it. So if you'll get your outlines, there's, I just kind of want to come to the main point. And then we're going to take a little bit of time to reflect. Here's what it boils down to. As we are beginning this series of leaning into some of our deep questions, the point is this, it is not unfaithful to honestly bring our questions before God, to bring our deepest hurts, our fears and our frustrations. We serve a God who is big enough to handle the full range of our emotions and even our deepest core questions. The reality is he already knows them. So we're not really protecting him when we pretend that they don't exist and we just plow ahead with kind of a forced faith. There's a guy named John Coe who's the founder of Talbot School of Ministry. And he has often said, prayer isn't a time to be good. It's a time to be honest. I mean, it's not like God doesn't already know what you're feeling. It's a time to come to him just as we are. And loving God with all of our being, all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength doesn't mean just heaping more blind faith onto our questions in some attempt to snuff them out. It means bringing them to him with honesty and humility, leaning into him in the midst of our questions and saying, here, I don't know what to do with these. I would love an answer, but at the end of the day, I entrust them to you. I will lean into you even though these questions exist. Really, it's an act of offering them over to God. And so what I want to do this morning is, is something that might fee, feel a little scary and will probably require a little bit of courage for many of you. And that is, I want us to take some time to honestly assess what the questions are that come between us and God. Now, they may be theological questions that you just tried to ignore because you're not really sure how they fit into your worldview. Or they may be deeper than that. It may be the sources of pain, circumstances that you're enduring or have endured things that have happened to you that have been inflicted upon you by your own choices or by others, or it may have been something that happened to somebody that you love deeply. But the point is this, there's three by five cards in each of your bulletins. And if you don't have one, please, uh, we have some extra bulletins in back. And if you don't have one, we'll make sure that we get you a three by five card. Just go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. I'll get you one, Bill. Um, but Justin, I'm going to invite you to come forward and here's what we're going to do. I want you to take about three or four minutes talking to God and honestly just going, what are the questions that I have been shoving to the back of my mind? What are the things that I haven't been giving voice to because honestly it has felt like it would be unfaithfulness to ask it? And would you take the courageous step 
to write it down on that card as an act of confessing it to both God but also to yourself. Okay? may need a little bit more time, and that's fine. Um, and, and throughout this week, I would encourage you to consider the questions that are on the bottom of your outline and maybe spend some real honest time processing with God, praying through that. But for now, um, the things that you've written on your connection cards, we're going to continue with our response time. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to take an offering right now. And in that offering, I would encourage you, if you are willing to drop these into it. You don't have to put your name on them. We don't need to know who they belong to, but this is the reason why there's, it's twofold. One, we as, as the pastors of the church would love to know the kind of things you guys are wrestling with. There may be questions that we're able to address over the course of this next series, so we'd like to know. But secondly, and, and far more importantly, would you be willing to drop this into the offering as an act of declaring to God, this, these are questions that are core questions. These are questions that matter greatly. But I'm willing to entrust them to you. Not demanding an answer before I'm willing to move towards you. But more of saying, I submit this to you. You already know it. But I hand it over to you as an act of worship and an act of trusting you, God. So, Father, I thank you so much that you're God, that you're not whimsical, you're not fickle like the world, like society, like us. I thank you that you are the creator and sustainer of all things, a God who can overcome even death, a God who redeems and restores. And I thank you that you are bigger than our questions. That you're bigger than our fears and you're bigger than our faults. And so we entrust these things to you. We entrust our lives to you. Have your way with us, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.